Our Old Testament reading this evening is from the book of Joel, the second chapter, verses 1 through 2, and also verses 12 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and, re and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and bounding in steadfast love. And he, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the, tra blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a, re a reproach, a beword among the nations. What shall they say among the peoples? Where is your God? The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalms 103. We will read responsively by one verse. Praise, praise the Lord, O oh my God, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sin and heals all your infirmities. Who saves your life from the who satisfies you with good things, renewing your youth like an eagle's. The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all those who are oppressed He showed his ways to Moses, his works to the children of Israel. The Lord was full of compassion and mercy, all suffering and great greatness. He will not always chide us, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy also toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he set our sins from us. As a father pities his own children, so is the Lord merciful to those who fear him. The days of men are as grass. He flourishes as a flower of the field. For as soon as the wind goes over it, it is gone, and its place shall know it no more. But the merciful goodness of the Lord endures forever and ever upon those who fear him, and his righteousness upon children's children. Even upon those who keep his covenant and think upon his commandments to do them. The Lord has prepared his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Oh, praise the Lord, 
Oh, praise the Lord, all you his, all you his host, you servants of his that do his pleasure. Oh, be good of the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is Corinthians 2, chapter 5, verse 20, and 6, chapter 10. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be seen who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through him and dis through, on through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrows yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet, yet possessing everything, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading tonight is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and 16 through 21. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound, sound not trump, trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, 
anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father in secret, who is in secret. And your Father who, is in, who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for your, you, yourselves treasures on earth, where the moth and rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not steal in, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is heart will always be, will will be always. The word of the Lord. This is probably the day of the year where, visually at least, we are most distinct from the world. And if we're going to be honest, most distinct from a lot of other expressions of Christianity. This is a day when we remind ourselves of the truth that we are dust, that we came from dust and to dust we shall return. Human life is, at its core, fleeting and frail. We, we heard it in Psalm 103, and it's all over the rest of the Bible. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. That line really got to me this week. When it is gone, its place knows it no more. Human life is fleeting, and it is frail. It's something we don't think about very often, and when we do, we often try to shut it out, but each and every one of us in this room, unless Jesus comes back, each and every one of us is going to die. Human beings today are living longer and healthier than at any time in history, but we are fundamentally more mortal creatures. We're under a death sentence of sin, and because of that, all of us will go down to the dust. And yet, much of what our, what are we, a lot of what we do in our lives is to try to cover up that fact or distract ourselves from that truth. Someone once said that all art is simply an attempt by human beings to deny their own mortality. We try to make our mark and, infl and, in and inflate our sense of importance, but at the end of the day, we are born, and we live a while, and then we die. And the earth will remember us no more. But the other thing that we hear in the scriptures over and over and over again, you'll hear, you are but dust, and to dust you shall return. That, that um, all people are like grass, and the wind passes over it. Dead. But we also hear that even though the earth will remember us no more, that God does remember us. As we enter into this season of Lent, I want to think about kind of what it means to sweep some of those things away that we do to try to, try to distract ourselves from the reality that we are going to die. This is important, and so I'm going to say it at the beginning and at the end. All the things that we do in Lent are for our benefit, okay? They are not necessary. They are not a necessary part of being a Christian. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that unless you get a little ash-shaped cross on your forehead, unless you pick things to give up for 40 days in the late winter and early spring— you're not a Christian. It doesn't say that. These are things that are done for our benefit because they help us develop habits and mindsets that bring us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. 
And so why do we do this at all? Well, we do it so that we get habits and mindsets that bring us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Why do we do it now? Why this time of year? Like, autumn would seem like a good time to sort of think about death and dying. But if you think about it, this is a really good time for us to think about denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following Jesus as we are going with him towards the cross. We journey with him from his Galilee ministry to the cross at Golgotha, but then, after these 40 days of fasting and denial, but then, three days after the cross, we then get to be with him in his resurrection. We get a 50-day feast that is made all the sweeter by this 40-day fast. And so I understand that for a lot of us, these practices are going to seem new and strange. There are some of you for whom this is your first time ever experiencing anything like this. And so I want to be clear. Don't do what I've done most of my life. Most of my life, when I come into a new situation and everybody else seems to know kind of what's going on, I just think to myself, well, shoot, everybody else figured this out. I probably need to just figure this out too. And I'll kind of catch up as I go. Don't do that. If any of this seems new or weird or strange, or if you want to push back and say, I don't think this is right, ask questions. Ask other people in the congregation. Ask me. I love to talk about this stuff. So the more we go into Lent, if you have questions about any of these practices, the theology behind it, anything, please ask questions. Don't just hope that you'll catch on. It is possible, it is quite possible, actually, to see this day as depressing, right? We're going to spend a lot of it in silence. We're going to spend a lot of it on our knees. One of the last things that you're going to get is you're going to get smeared with, with ashes in the shape of a torture device. It starts a 40-day season where we focus on three things that Jesus mentioned in our gospel text. Prayer, fasting, giving generously to the poor. Now, if you look at those things as depressing, in the same way that you can look at this day as depressing, then everything that we're going to do for the next seven weeks can seem like an obligation and a drudgery, and I know I'm supposed to do this, but I don't want to, and then it's just like the, the, the theological equivalent of like, celery or broccoli or something that you don't want to eat, but you know you should because it's good for you. But Jesus calls us to do these things, prayer, fasting, giving generously to the poor, not so that it will make us miserable. He calls us to do these things because these are little examples of what he did for us. These are little examples of an inbreaking of his kingdom into this world. So if Ash Wednesday seems like a, a downer of a day or if Lent seems like drudgery, it's fundamentally because we're missing the point. The, the idea of this is not to see how miserable that we can be so that we can win points with God. And certainly it's not the idea of this is to, to show how, how self-sacrificing we can be to win points with our neighbor. Because Jesus actually specifically warned against that. No, the, the point of this is to make different choices. And the point of this is to give things up to not to, to prove to ourselves how resilient we are. The point of this is to give things up, make more space in our lives. Just that simple. We take a season every year and we reorient our hearts, we reorient our thinking, and we reorient our practices, the way that we go through life. 
so that we can have more room to focus on the simple things that truly matter. Let me talk about fasting for a minute. Fasting is something that is mentioned a lot in Scripture. It's just kind of taken as a given that the people of God will spend time fasting. And this was at a time when food was a lot more scarce than it is now. And so the idea of willingly giving something up that is necessary for sustaining your life at a time when there wasn't an overabundance, a superabundance of food that was available to the vast majority of people. That was showing dedication to God, but it was also showing trust in God. And so I realize that this isn't true for everybody, but for the majority of Americans today, the issue is there isn't enough food around. The issue is there's way too much of really unhealthy food. We just simply don't live in a fasting culture. We live in a very self-soothing, instant gratification culture, and I don't say that pointing out to the world. I say that about myself. But the church calls its people to fast for their own good. So we fast from food on Ash Wednesday as we prepare to enter into this season of denying ourselves. And we fast for the last couple of days of Lent, from the evening of Maundy Thursday until we're celebrating the Easter resurrection. So basically what that means is the last thing that we're going to eat on Thursday night is when we consume the Lord's Supper together. And then the first thing that we eat when we celebrate the resurrection two days later, we're consuming the Lord's Supper together. And in between, we deny ourselves in the same way that the Savior denied himself. So as I said, we don't give things up in order to, in order to win points with God or in order to, to test ourselves. We do it in order to make more space for the one thing that matters. Because none of the things that we're doing, none of the things that we're giving up should be inherently bad, right? Like you shouldn't say, well... I'm, I'm, you know, giving up hardcore drugs for Lent. Like, that's really not what this is. Um, I'm giving up stealing my neighbor's newspaper in the morning. Really not quite what we're going for. The things that we're giving up are inherently not bad. They're good gifts from God. Food isn't bad. We need it to live. Friends, our network of, of acquaintances, experiences that we have in life, any of these things, none of them are bad. But anything, when elevated to the level that, be, it, that it begins to define us, where we look to it for our satisfaction and our meaning, those are things that can get in the way of us seeing God. Elizabeth and I have a friend named Lou Bailey from Washington, D.C. She was speaking about this once, and it was so good that I wrote it down, and I say this, I, I give this illustration every single Ash Wednesday. So if this is the second or third time that you've heard me preach Ash Wednesday, be the second or third time you've heard this story and you get ready to hear it next year too. Lou Bailey was talking about when she finally figured out Lent. She said, if you have a, a diamond, beautiful diamond, and you lay it on a, on a patterned cloth, it's kind of hard to see. You can make it out, but you don't see a lot of the depth to it. But when you take a diamond and you lay it on a black velvet background like jewelry, you start to see its intricacy. It shines, and it sparkles, and it has facets, and it glows. And you realize why it is so valuable. When we remove the distractions, and when we, when we change the background of our lives, it makes Jesus stand out a lot clearer. So this is basically what the, the, the bright sadness of Lent, uh, a phrase that 
Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann uses. And, and it's true. This does not need to be a season of twisting our faces up in, in pain. This needs to be a season of giving things up, make Christ shine through all the clear. And I know that for me, my life is often not that black background that I want. Oftentimes, it's the patterned cloth. And very slowly, over the course of years, I've been, I've, I've been very slow to embrace the idea that actually giving things up for Lent is really a good thing for my benefit. And I'm not saying that I'm some great pietist, but, but let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Because the key is, the things that we give up for Lent, we don't give them up for their own sake. We give them up so that we can then replace them with something else. Elizabeth and I love watching the old Agatha Christie series Poirot, late 80s and 90s. It's, it's like Law and Order or I Love Lucy or any one of those shows where like every single episode is basically the exact same thing. And people will go, how can you watch that? Like all the episodes are the same. And the person who loves the show goes, I know. All the episodes are the same. It's fantastic. So Elizabeth and I, at the end of the night, after we put Gus down, we just love sitting back and relaxing with this show. And there is nothing sinful about that. Last night we were talking about Lenten practices, and I said, what if we gave up, for, what if we gave up Poirot for the next seven weeks? But if we did that just to do it, if we did that just to give, say we were giving something up, I would probably just fill that time with reading spy novels or playing stupid games on my phone. Like there isn't, you know, the rest of that patterned cloth of my life would probably seep in and fill that hole. And so as Elizabeth and I were talking, we very quickly pivoted from what if we gave up Poirot for seven weeks? What if we gave up Poirot for seven weeks so that we could take that 50-minute block of time every night and spend that reading scripture together, praying together? And that's really the key. The things that we abstain from, we do it so that we can bring in more of the things of Jesus. There was a, a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers, and he spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. That is, when we get something, when we bring something new into our lives, it can drive out the, it, it can drive out the unhelpful and negative desires that we have better than anything else can. And that's all this is. This is replacing things that we do with more of Christ. So chocolate, alcohol, Facebook, any of that, none of them are inherently wrong. But we pursue holiness, which is just simply, that sounds like such a bad word, but it's just simply another way of saying we pursue Jesus. We pursue holiness, not just by giving up bad things, but by replacing them with something that God has called us to do. And the thing is that as we do that over and over, year after year, oftentimes you'll find that these new patterns that we have during Lent can actually like seep out into the rest of our lives. And that's one of the other goals of it, that these, the, we, we find new ways of being more like Jesus, and then that infects the rest of our year. Building a life as an apprentice of Christ. Listen to what Joel says. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Second Corinthians says something very similar. I wonder if Paul had Psalm 103 in mind when he said, I implore you, be reconciled to God. 
be reconciled to God. Rend your hearts and not your garments, says Joel. Tearing your garments only shows grief and anguish. Tearing your heart is basically a metaphor, and it means repentance. It's saying get rid of your own desires, get rid of what you want, and focus on what God wants for you. So rending your heart, tearing up your own desires, that is, that is true repentance. That is reconciliation with God. And this is the important part, and this is the thing that get over, gets overlooked, because when we see commands like return to the Lord and rend your hearts, these are all things that we are supposed to do. But think about what else it says. Think about what else Joel says and what Psalm 103 says. Think about what God does when we turn back to him, right? We can only do a couple of things with our sin. We can indulge it. We can pretend that it's not there. We can try to balance it out with good deeds to make sure that we're at least like 51% a good person. Or we can simply bring it to God on our knees. I'll never forget a little, there was a little throwaway line one day that um, one of Elizabeth and my theater professors said, and this is like 30 years ago, and I'm sure he doesn't remember it, but I did. He was talking about sin, and he said, when I try to hide my sin from God and from others and from myself, that's when Satan is really able to do his work. Because if my sin is behind my back, so that God can't see it and other people can't see it and even I can't see it. I have no idea what's going on back there. Satan can do whatever he wants with it. What I need to do with my sin is hold it out here and that forces me to confront it. And it means that other people are going to see it. But it also means that I'm going to be lifting it up to God in repentance. And I'm going to let him deal with it. That's the crazy thing because God does the most amazing things with us. We saw it in Psalm 103. Did you catch it when we said it? It said, He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His covenant toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far, he remove our sins. Out of all the things that I said that we can do with our sin, that's the only one that has a positive result. Simply bringing it to God. Humble yourself and repent. Lent is like a, a, a supercharged reminder that the Christian life is really a life that is lived in a posture of repentance and the assurance of forgiveness. Bring your sin to the foot of the cross and just Watch what God will do with you. That's what he's crying out for his people to do in Joel. It's what, he's, it's what he's practically begging his people to do in Psalm 103. He will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and he will actively forget them. After we come to him, when he takes our sins off of us and he piles them onto the huge mound of sin all of which Jesus bled and died for. When he looks back at us, he can't remember what we did wrong. Clean slate. Resurrection life because of the shed blood of Christ. Who wouldn't want that? My fellow, fellow priest, Keith Brault, up at Church of the Incarnation, we were on a 
pastor's retreat together for the last couple days. And he's, he's the one who gave me that phrase. He and I were talking about Psalm 103, and he said, it's like God is saying, bring that sin to me and just watch what I will do with it. I used to have a, a really bad view of Lent. There was a bunch of times in my life I'd be around people who were giving things up for Lent, and it felt like they were constantly just trying to compare notes. What are you giving up for that? I'm going to give this up for that. What are you doing for that? And at the time, it just seemed really performative. And in my younger and jerkier years, and by that I mean like three years ago, um, when people would ask me what I was giving up for Lent, I would always have the same answer, which is, up, which is I'm giving up false piety. But I didn't understand it. I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand that I was actually really the false one because I thought this was stuff that we just did on the exterior to show that we were good Christians. And I was, I was much more caught up in the idea of, of heart change. I was much more caught up in the idea that God loves me for who I am, not for what I do. I was so caught up in my idea of what Christian freedom is, I didn't see the actual bright sadness in denying yourself, in taking a season to make room for Christ by sweeping other stuff away. It was the same sort of useless piety that I was actually railing against. That kind of piety where it puts all the emphasis back on me. It's really one of the dangers of life. And it's actually the danger of religion in general. We end up doing it all the time. We retell God's story with ourselves at the same time. But the reason that we're here tonight, the reason that we do any of this is not to return to ourselves we get ourselves all the time. We are here to recenter our hearts and our thoughts on God. We are, re- we are here to recenter our minds on God. And with these spiritual disciplines that we do, these, these practices that we do, they, they help us not only to recenter our thinking on God and to recenter our emotions on God, but actually to recenter our actions, to reorient our whole lives on God. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love. I would remind you again, because it's one of my favorite words, anytime in the Bible you see the words steadfast love, it's an almost untranslatable Hebrew word called hesed. It's the word that God used with Abraham when he made his covenant with him, his one-way covenant that was unbreakable. It's God's covenant love for his people that we simply do not have the power to break. And if all that we believed in, in this faith of ours, if all that we believed in was the cross, if our preaching and our theology, if all of that stopped at the cross, then I would be done talking right now. But I'm not. Because the Bible not only points us to the cross through which we are saved, the Bible actually centers itself on the empty tomb and the resurrection life of God's covenant family. And so Jesus gives us little hints and glimpses of what that life might look like, what it might look like for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in a fallen and broken world. And the gospel passage that Nessie read so beautifully details What has become throughout church history the three practices of Lent? An increase in charitable giving. 
where we take what we have and we simply give it away to those who are less fortunate than us. We have no clue what they'll do with it. It's not, up for, it's not ours to, to know. We know that everything that we have, God has given us, and that it is ours to give away and to bless someone else. He calls us to prayer, Jesus does. He talks a lot about prayer. And he calls us to fasting. And there's a word that Jesus uses over and over again when he talks about all three of those things. Secret. Don't do these things in a showy manner. Don't stand on the street corner with a stack of hundreds and just start handing them out for all to see. When you pray, don't do like the hypocrites do where they stand up and they love to heap up empty phrases. And when you fast, this is an interesting thing about Ash Wednesday. When you fast, take a shower, comb your hair, do your makeup, put on nice clothes. Go outside as though nothing different, as though you weren't doing anything different than any other day of the week. Because you're not fasting for the world, you're fasting for God. So why do we do these things in secret? Because otherwise we would just have a whole lot of showy people trumpeting their own piety in public, which again focuses things back on me. But Jesus, a few minutes earlier in this exact same sermon from Matthew 6, he told his followers, he told his church, that they were salt and light. They were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And here's the thing to remember if we're going to be salt and light. Nobody eats salt on its own. You use salt to preserve something or to season something. And the point of a light is not to look directly into the light and talk about what a great light it is. The point of the light is to illuminate something else. So if we are going to be salt and light, we do that by preserving this faith that we have been given graciously. We do that by pointing to a greater reality than the one that we can see. What we do as the church, we preserve and we point. We do that while at the same time taking this season to deny ourselves. To make Continue to be salt and light while we empty ourselves a little bit more than we normally do. Things of this world will all pass away. Every human institution, every great civilization, every building that is ever built, and certainly every building, everyone who has ever been in any of this. Empires rise and fall, and no amount of wishing is going to change the fact. Unless Jesus comes back, each and every one of us is going to die. God has a better way. God has a truer way. So today is a day of repentance, of turning and returning to Him, and of adopting a new posture. And so as these ashes fall on our heads, may it be the sign of Jesus' great sacrifice for us. So I'll say this at the end, as I said at the beginning, and I told you I would say it twice. Lent is for our benefit. Doing these things is for our own good. You don't have to do them. You really don't. We get to get to because it helps us, put, it puts us more and more in the mind shows us the practices that he called us to do. They're for our benefit because they help us develop habits, mindsets that simply bring us into a deeper discipleship. So I would invite you over these next 40 days to replace that patterned cloth that your life might be with the simple black velvet lent so that we can see Jesus.
Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit.